this is Mises Weekends with your host, Jeff Dice. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to Mises Weekends. We're joined, as you can see, by our good friend, Bob Murphy, Dr. Robert Murphy, who probably needs no introduction to most of you. Uh, he is uh, one half of the uh, Lara Murphy Report. He is obviously one half of the Contra Krugman podcast with Tom Woods. And I think most importantly, we're really pleased that he is now part of the Free Market Institute at Texas Tech University, working down there with Ben Powell. And we're hearing a lot of good things about uh, students potentially choosing Texas Tech uh, for their, their PhD in econ. So there's some growth and some energy there. Uh, so welcome, Bob. It's great to see you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm actually going to be joining Bob in a week. We're having an event in Chicago at the uh, University Club there. And also a couple days later, we're having a weekend event in Seattle. Um, one of the things I think Bob is going to be discussing in Chicago is uh, because we're in the home of uh, the Chicago School and, and Monetarism, uh, he's going to be talking about Austrian perspectives versus monetarist perspective on what's going on in the uh, in the economy. And of course, there, there's other what people tend to refer to as free market schools of thought. There's there's supply side, which is kind of a school. There's public choice, et cetera. But but really, the the what we call the dominant uh, free market schools are still Austrian versus Chicago. And Bob, I, I want to get one thing out of the way. You and I have been talking. Uh, relative to a, a Lara Murphy uh, report interview. You know, e economics is science. Right. But libertarians want to sort of use it for their convenience to reach these normative conclusions about how the world ought to be run. But there really is no such thing as free market economics. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I use the phrase a lot too, just so people understand, you know, what what, are, what I'm saying. But yes, you're right. Strictly speaking, economics is a value-free science. Mises stressed that. And it's important to make that point because to be able to use it, you know, it has to be non-ideological. So just like it wouldn't make sense to say, oh, a Republican versus a Democratic physics or chemistry by the same token. Yes, economic science is what it is. And it doesn't matter what your or it shouldn't matter what your political views are in terms of government policy prescriptions. Right. And 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 sometimes our opponents use it against us. They dismissively refer to Austrians and, and what they mean is libertarians. In other words, they're using the term synonymously. Yeah. And it's, there is, there is an affinity, I, I would say. Um, and so I don't want, you know, I don't think we should pussyfoot around that. And I've used the term like referring to someone as an Austro libertarian. Yeah. And some people hate that. Term. So, you know, where it comes from, of course, is, I mean, Murray Rothbard is probably the prime example of this is that if you are a libertarian in terms of your views on the proper role of uh, you know, how should force be used if you endorse the non-aggression principle? And so you don't think it's right, it's it's moral to initiate force against somebody. Well, you know, if you were a Keynesian in terms of your economics, I mean, those two things could go hand in hand. There's no logical contradiction, but it would be sort of like, ah, yes, the government does have the power to prevent recessions and to spare millions of people unemployment, but I would just find it immoral for them to do so. And so, you know, it it's sort of reassuring for people who, you know, the, the non-aggression principle sounds great to them, but they're just worried, oh, gee, if we actually followed that, would we be condemned to misery and would we suffer through depressions every decade? So it's sort of nice to realize, oh, wait a minute, no, actually violating the non-aggression principle, my scientific background and training shows me, leads to bad consequences also. Well, economists certainly would like to think that their ideas can affect the real world, right? That's part of the, yeah. that, that's one of the big <laughs> criticisms that we're all living in this, this theoretical bubble. But 
what I want to talk about today is is monetarism for a bit. Um, Alan Meltzer, who was a monetarist, died earlier this week. There are a lot of obits going around about him. Uh, interestingly, he was not actually a Friedmanite. I think we tend to think of Chicago School and Friedmanism and monetarism as as wholly synonymous when it, per, perhaps they aren't. Um, so Joe Salerno has an article this weekend on the Mises.org website that's sort of criticizing Milton Friedman and, and talking about uh, one of the premises of Friedman's life work was that was was an all sort of paraphrase that the demand for money is in fact very stable, and this is something that uh, that Salerno criticizes in his piece. So talk to us a little bit about the concept of of demand for money and also velocity of money. What what is velocity of money, and and should we care about velocity of money? Okay, sure, and. You know, we, we should probably give the caveat. We're going to try to keep this at a high level and not get too much into the weeds here, just for people who may never have heard these things before. No, I want you to dumb it down for me. Y- yes. <laughs> so, um, probably a, a good thing to start with is the so-called equation of exchange, which is you'll see like MV equals PT. So uh, that's you know the the amount of money M times the velocity of money V is an accounting principle. You know equals the P, the price level, times T, the number of transactions. Or sometimes you'll see it with Q, the amount of real output. And so, you know, Friedman and others who are stressing the the monetarism, the monetary approach to things, they like to start with that equation, which is, it's a tautology, it's true. Um, And so in that thing, you know, it's money, you know, how many dollars, think of it in terms of the U.S., how many dollar bills are there? And then the velocity would mean how many times in a given period, like a year, does the typical dollar bill turn over? Does it change hands? So if you think about that, okay, except for the moment that definition, then N times V is the total amount of expenditures, right? How much? How many dollars are there times how many times they change hands? And then that has to equal the, the right-hand side of the equation, which is the average price of a good times the total number of, of transactions. So what, what's the point of that? Well, if you then want to focus on the money supply, if you want to sort of keep things from getting distorted, Friedman's point is, hey, as long as velocity is fairly constant, that V, well, then we can kind of keep things moving stably. What if M just rises at a predictable level year after year, a certain percentage, let's say, as long as V's not bouncing around, well, then now we've got stability. So that means P times T has to rise stably. And so, you know, the idea was, this will just cause a, a gradual rise in the price level over time and everything's predictable. So we're not distorting the economy from the monetary side. Right? Right. So, so that's kind of where he's coming from. So then, you know, the there's lots of problems that Austrians have raised with that sort of perspective. So one thing I think the most fundamental is Murray Rothbard's pointing out, you know, th- those those definitions like like P, the average, you know, it's like the average price level. What does that even mean? You know, p- people don't think in terms of price levels, right? There's particular prices of particular goods and and given transactions. And that's how people think entrepreneurs just care about a certain subset of prices of, you know, their inputs and what they project to be the outputs. And so nobody ever uses that. And in fact, that kind of flies in the face of the whole subjectivist marginalist revolution of the 1870s, where we threw out the old classical view of thinking in terms of just macro holistic things and focused on individual transactions on the margin. So that's that's one problem with that approach is it's sort of harking back to, you know, the, the classical tradition rather than the modern view of, of how you analyze action. 
Um, and then as far as what Salerno was getting at, Joe Salerno, again, Friedman's whole enterprise there breaks down if, like, say, during the business cycle, what if the demand to hold money? So if you really want to hold money and hoard it, as it were, that means measured velocity would fall, right? Because now people are holding on to money. So in terms of measuring it, they would change hands fewer times. People aren't spending as much. So if V can bounce around like crazy for its own, let's say, endogenous reasons, well, then even if you did stabilize the growth of M, you're not achieving what the alleged goal was. So that's that's part of the issue. And and Joe's talking about this this new paper by these three econometricians, you know, who are not don't seem to have a dog in the fight. And they're just pointing out, hey, you know what Milton Friedman and his co-author Anna Schwartz did in their empirical work. They, you know, smoothed a lot of this data by averaging it and so on and detrending it and blah, blah, blah. And so for them to say, oh, money demand's pretty much stable, that's not in the actual data. They kind of impose that and then use that as one of the, you know, the assumptions to get their, their theory to work. Well, so the analogy that Milton Friedman use, uses is the accelerator and the brake. Monetary money supply can be an accelerator or, or a break uh, on the economy. I mean, to us anyway, th this sounds an awful lot like meddling. It's, this sounds like a, a lot like demand side uh, stimulus uh, using fiscal or government policy as the accelerator of the break, which we think of as a, a sort of a Keynesian notion. And it also seems to me that that Austrians say, well, what's so bad about people deriving uh, uh, some sort of satisfaction from money held? Um, th this idea that they're stuffing it in their mattresses and it's not out there pinging around and creating velocity. Well, is, is that the government's business or is that a central bank's business? Right. So, yeah, there's there's two separate issues here. One is just sort of the, you know, as economists, how are we going to view things and, and model, if you will, or just characterize it? And you're right. So Mises, for example, uh, pointed out often that there's no such thing as money in circulation. Right. And it's wrong to think of it as dollar bills moving around the economy like a stream or something that he said, no, at any given moment, every piece of money is owned by someone. It's in somebody's cash balances, right? Even if you're in the middle of a transaction, it's in my possession. Then when I hand over my $20 bill and get the goods, you know, the titles change hands. And now the merchant is the one who owns that $20 bill. But at any given moment, you know, there's no such thing as money that's in limbo that's not owned by somebody. Right. And so, the, you know, the modern, you know, the way certainly Mises established it, but it's not just the Austrians, even other schools of thought, you know, they analyze the, the demand to hold money in terms of the desire to have a certain amount of cash balances. And so, yes, the public derives utility from holding money, just like you derive utility from other things. I mean, the, the specific motives are, are different, but in terms of as economists, how are we going to analyze it? That yeah, that you should use the same subjective marginal utility approach, and, and Mises, in fact, you know, was one of the pioneers of this. So that's one issue of what's problematic with this approach. But also, you're right in terms of the policy prescriptions that that yes, it there actually is an affinity between Keynesianism and Friedmanite monetarism in that respect. That uh, you know, the Keynesians say, oh, geez, aggregate demand collapsed during the 1930s. The government should have run big budget deficits in order to prime the pump and stimulate demand. Whereas the Friedmanites, you know, they're not that far different. They're saying, oh, yeah, the uh, demand to hold money increased greatly and the, and the quantity of money collapsed. And so the way, you know, the government needs to fix that. And the method, though, is not running budget deficits, but by pumping in money from the Federal Reserve. So either way, they're both sort of agreeing the free market left to its own devices would have 
spiraled down into oblivion and they're just disagreeing on the particular way that the interventionist, you know, wonk economists are going to come in and save the day. Well, that is interesting that, there, that there's that parallel. And of course, when we're talking about uh, there is sort of a new mode of thought known as MMT, modern monetary theory. And I know you've tangled with some of its proponents. But what's interesting is that uh, MMT also imagines this uh, priming the pump versus put, applying the brakes, but through tax policy. So I, I, you know me, Bob, I'm suspicious of anything with the with the word modern in it when it comes <laughs> to economics. Would you would you agree that that monetarism is a fundamentally macro outlook, and 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 macro versus micro is something that that a lot of Austrians have have challenged as as a, a meaningless distinction. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And like I say, I mean, just that's part of the problem, methodologically speaking, with the monetarist approach and starting from the MV equals PT sort of framework. It's not just that I would differ with the policy conclusions a lot of economists would derive from starting with that, but also just in principle, like we don't talk about, we want to say, what's the price of tomatoes? We don't say, okay, what are the total amount of tomatoes in the economy? Mm-hmm. And how many times on average does a tomato change hands? And or, that, that's... It's not just that, that would be a weird way of doing it. That would be completely at odds with the modern price theory, you know, in, in terms of valuing uh, subjective individual items and on the margin. Like, and again, this isn't just an Austrian thing. I mean, this is modern economics now. Right. Using that term "modern" since eighteen the eighteen seventies. So, yes, they the the monetarist approach. They they're starting with the, the total quantity of money, and they're using economy wide aggregates that don't go into any individual's uh, calculations or reasoning when when an individual decides, what do I want to do right now? Or an individual business person decides, what actions do I want to take? You don't need to know what's the total quantity of money or what's the average price level. That's that's an empty concept. Well, Bob, let's Let's talk about monetary policy today. What what would a monetarist versus an Austrian say about sort of the current monetary policy? We've had extraordinary monetary policy since the crash of 08. We've had successive rounds of quantitative easing. And as a result, we've had interest rates kept what we might say artificially low through all this bond buying and this dramatic expansion in the Fed's balance sheet. So what would be a monetarist view of that and an Austrian view of that? Well, I think for sure, and obviously with all these things, there's going to be nuances among individual exponents. But I think in general, um, the Austrian school has been very skeptical of the things that the Fed has done since the financial crisis that, you know, they stress, hey, uh, you know, the interest rate is a price that they actually has some social function to perform. And you're not doing the economy any favors by pushing interest rates down to basically zero percent, according to certain you know, measures. And just leaving them there for years on end, that the, the that this screws up relative prices. It's not merely an issue of oh, is there enough liquidity or whatever term you want to use in the economy that you're screwing up relative prices? And that's kind of the essence of the Mises Hayek approach to the business cycle. That they're not just looking at things like oh, what's the rate of price inflation and so on. So I think that's the you know the Austrian concern and that a lot of male investments have been made since the Fed engaged in these extraordinary measures. And so entrepreneurs are not investing in the proper lines. And so the whole capital structure of the economy is out of whack. So that, you know, and in that that type of analysis, you can't even do that in other schools of thought because they don't have a rich enough uh, capital structure in their models. They just have things like the ISLM curve intersecting or what have you, or aggregate supply, aggregate demand. 
So you can't even tell the Austrian story in their framework. Um, as far as monetarists, I know for sure what this this new school that calls themselves market monetarism. So they, you know, look as 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 the founders. You know, they, they think their founders are guys like Milton Friedman and so on, but they think they've moved beyond and tweaked it. And so their view, they think what what needs to be stabilized is the growth of nominal gross domestic product, right? So like how how many total dollars are spent on things or income earned year after year. So not adjusting for price inflation, but just saying, you know, what's the total amount of GDP every year in nominal terms? If you can keep that growing at a steady rate, that's all the Fed should do. So it's it's ironic. They look at what happened in 2008, 2009, is the Fed being asleep at the wheel and letting nominal GDP growth collapse. So they think that, you know, their diagnosis of the of the Great Recession is to say that the Fed had an extraordinarily tight monetary policy. So again, just showing the huge difference here in perspective, you know, whereas most other, even Keynesians were saying, oh yeah, the Fed was inflating, it was really loose, it just wasn't enough. I think the standard Austrian would say, oh yeah, the Fed was inflating, it was really loose, and that's gonna set us up for another crash. This is what got us into the you know, problem the first time after the dot-com crash, loose policy, blowing up a housing bubble, we're just doing the same as, Whereas these the market monetarists who view themselves as like the modern inheritors of the Friedmanite tradition are saying, no, the Fed was way too tight. I w well, last thing I'll say, though, is Anna Schwartz did have an op-ed, I think, like in the Wall Street Journal, where she had been very critical of what Bernanke was doing. And so, you know, she's the, the one who has the most uh, credibility and authority to say, you know, what would the Friedmanite position have been? So she was concerned about I mean, because what the another aspect of all this is Friedman wanted the Fed to, to follow a rule so that everybody knew what was going to happen and not allow discretionary you know, policy. And so clearly part of what was going on with Bernanke's stuff with all those extraordinary measures is nobody even knew what the Fed was doing. You know what I mean? Like they, they were bailing out, giving loans, short-term loans to banks and not even telling the public which banks were getting the loans because all oh, that would defeat the purpose of the program. Sort of, you know? So that sort of stuff I think is hard for anybody to defend. But as I say, a lot of the modern market monetarists were saying, well, they were doing that stuff. But yeah, the important thing was to to bolster liquidity and, to, you know, because there wasn't enough total aggregate demand, which again, is a very Keynesian right. sort of analysis. Well, I think one problem with some of these rules-based models like the Taylor rule is that there's political pressure. Rules are meant to be broken, especially when there's a crisis, so-called and I would add, if you read uh, Joe Salerno's uh, obituary of Alan Meltzer, again, a monetarist, who, a, a, a very prominent monetarist who died um, earlier this week, uh, Meltzer also came out as a harsh critic of QE. So, so um, let me ask you this, Bob, who are some of the names who would be modern monetarists? That, would they be familiar to us? Um, yeah, I, Big I names? mean, Guys, yeah, I mean, like uh, Timberlake and okay. yeah, Meltzer, and as I say, a lot of them, it's, it's. I'm more familiar with the people who are doing the, the market monetarism thing. Right. That you know, Scott Sumner and okay. even guys like George Selgin, who's an Austrian but is right. you know, very uh, friendly with those guys. So right. that's part of the, as far as Austrians are concerned, that that's the the issue is there's a lot of people trying to say the so-called free banking approach. You know, oh, maybe that's compatible with market monetarism. Maybe just a matter of, you know, with the free market implement, you know, decentralized, stable and GDP growth. You know, so that that's where some of the, the issue is coming in. So there's to my mind, it's I'm more concerned in the stuff I've been doing is if since I think market monetarism is wrong 
to focus on them because there's not so much danger of a young Rothbardian, let's say, going over to Keynesianism. Right. Whereas there is a lot of, a, of superficial, at least, affinity between the modern market monetarists and, and the Austrian school. Now, did you ha- ever have an opportunity to meet Milton Friedman? No, no. Uh, I'm told, I think Lou Rockwell has been there, and I'm told he had a beautiful apartment uh, near Coit Tower in San Francisco. People who are familiar will know that's a very, that's one of the higher points in the city. It has beautiful views and everything. Uh, but let, let me sort of ask you this. We're almost out of time. You know, we talk about infighting uh, amongst various schools, amongst libertarians, amongst economists. Um, but first of all, is it really infighting when, when the, let's say, Austrians would say that we have a radically different approach to interest rates, to how money is even provided in, in a society outside of a central bank? I, I'm not so sure that's infighting versus just a fundamentally different perspective on money, which is, uh, along with goods and services, uh, basically half the economy. Right. I totally agree with you. And that's, I, I think, yeah, sometimes the way that manifests itself is people might say, Oh, you Austrians are always just trying to, you know, be real nitpicky and focus on the one or two things where you disagree with Friedman. Can't you just all be agree you're mostly on the same side and it's the Keynesians who are the enemy or you know whoever right. the, the socialist? And yeah, so I, you know, I do try to say I'm, I read Friedman. You know, when I was younger, he was one of the you know influential people in my development. So certainly, uh, he was important in that respect. But the, the problem is because they're considered such an authority on libertarian policy prescriptions or what have you, you know, it gives guys like Paul Krugman can easily say, oh, even Milton Friedman agrees to da 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 And so I think that's why it's important, you know, when there is a sharp divide. And also uh, Rothbard pointed this out a lot that it's funny that a lot of economists are often, you know, the thing that they're known for, their specialty is the area where they're really not very good. So with Friedman, yeah, I love a lot of what he does. But what he's really known for and famous for is monetarism and his views on central banking. And that's one area where I really disagree with him fundamentally. And again, it's it's not, not, not merely like an ideological thing like, oh, he thinks the Fed should do such and such. And I disagree. It, again, it's, it's more of a methodological thing that, you know, if, if Friedman's views were applied to oil, they would seem socialist, right? Like, oh, we should have a group of experts who sit there, sit around and come up with a rule for how much oil output should grow each year. And as long as the market was informed of that and they knew ahead of time oil output would grow 3.2% year after year, that would take oil's influence out of the economy. We wouldn't have reset. That would be crazy. What are we talking about? No, I mean, what if the demand for oil changes? So this, yes, the same thing comes to money. And I think Austrians are more consistent in both theory and history looking at saying what there's no reason to not have free enterprise and money and banking just like we have it in other sectors. And all the reasons that government cartelization, command and control policies in the computer industry or the car sector, we can all see how that would be horrible. So why would you want to let government do that with banks and money? That doesn't make any sense. Well, we'll leave it with that. But but to be fair to the monetarists, there was a period where the Austrian school was not uh, as in, in, as lively as it is now, let's say maybe the 50s to the 70s, where they were Milton Friedman and the monetarists were doing the heavy lifting, uh, presenting the non-Keynesian Approach oh, to things. Yeah, I mean, what what is great about uh, Friedman, like the way they blew up the Phillips curve, let's mm-hmm. say, you know, so that mm-hmm. Friedman was great on that, you know, coming up with the permanent income hypothesis, things like that. So showing that, yes, even if statistically it looks like there's this short run Phillips curve, meaning if there's more inflation, then unemployment goes down temporarily. It seems like there's this trade off that the policymaker can exploit. 
you know, Friedman was one of the, the great guys, both theoretically and empirically, to, you know, to show that's an illusion. Once the public catches on to that's what the policymaker's doing, the Phillips curve itself would move. And so that okay. alleged trade-off would just move against you. And so, you know, there, there's you can't permanently goose the economy by just pumping in money. You're just going to end up with the worst of both worlds. So, yeah, Friedman was great um, in attacking hydraulic Keynesianism. Well, with that, we're out of time, Bob. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're in Chicago or thereabouts this coming Thursday, the 18th, I believe, come join us at the University Club there. If you happen to be in Seattle or the Pacific Northwest, we'll be there on Saturday morning, the 20th at uh, the Town Hall venue in downtown Seattle. And ladies and gentlemen, have a great weekend. Subscribe to Mises Weekends via iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, or listen on Mises.org and YouTube.